following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. So we began this exercise by observing ourselves, observing our thinking, observing our emotional states, as well as the body. This act of clear seeing, observation, is the entranceway into meditation. It is the unfoldment, the means the method. Meditation is precisely the science of perceiving clearly, without obscuration, without conditioning. If we're honest, when we sit for five minutes, or even 10, 20, half an hour, if we look within ourselves, what we typically perceive is a conglomeration of different thoughts, different emotions, different memories, which seem to surge and to churn without control, without any order, without any coherence. So meditation is the science of expanding that attention, developing it. This awareness of oneself and this understanding of all the factors that make up who we are psychologically. In terms of our thoughts, our emotions, our impulses to act. Meditation is about understanding these elements, where they originate from, how they emerge, sustain, and pass from the screen of our awareness, our attention. Consciousness is simply the ability to look, to see, not with physical senses, but with psychological ones, to understand that we are not thought, that we are not emotion, that we are not the impulses of the body, the instincts. Looking within, we learn to see that we are composed of many elements, that meditation helps us to understand and to comprehend, because the science of awakening consciousness is the science of freeing oneself from conditions, from elements, 
that shape and limit our attention, our perception. So the consciousness is simply the ability to observe, to pay attention, to remember what one is doing. If you sit for five minutes and find that the mind is wandering, thinking of other things, being distracted, it means that our consciousness is not strengthened enough, enough, developed. It is not potent enough to remain focused. And if we are observing ourselves in those five minutes of meditation, we tend to understand or can see that this is the psychological state of our being on a moment-to-moment basis, day by day. We tend to live life in a very identified fashion, a very mechanical fashion, reacting to the circumstances of life impulsively. Because if you look within those five minutes of meditation, simply blocking out the senses, looking inside to what is within, that is a barometer for how conscious we really are throughout our daily experience. Because by shutting off the senses, introspecting within, we get a glimpse of what our daily state of life is like in a more objective sense, in a more clear sense. So meditation is not simply about sitting for five minutes, ten minutes, becoming relaxed, although that's the introduction, the beginning of awakening perception. Instead, it has to do with understanding the conditions that shape our daily state, which make us suffer. To understand what are the psychological obstacles within the mind, within our heart, that condition us, conditions our way of seeing, of being, of understanding. So there are many factors that make up who we are, but in a subjective sense. If you really go deep and develop this practice further, learning to observe as a consciousness within oneself, one sees that one is not thought. Because thoughts emerge, they sustain upon the screen of our awareness, they pass away, like memories, like clouds. Likewise, emotions, moods, emerge, sustain, pass away. Likewise, the sensations of the body, an itch, a scratch, something that irritates. These, likewise, emerge, sustain, pass away on the screen of our experience. So these factors are really impermanent. There's nothing stable about them. And yet, if we are developing our observation of ourselves, we can realize that that which is eternal, that which is divine, is the consciousness. And the act of looking, the act of seeing oneself as one is, is light, understanding. So meditation is about developing that perception of oneself. Because consciousness is light, the ability to perceive beyond any conditioning, beyond any limitations, beyond any belief. So few people recognize that our psychology is something that is feasible to modify, to change. It is possible to change 
one's state of suffering on a day-to-day -day basis, to transform one's mind. This is something that Buddhism explains very beautifully in the Four Noble Truths. One, that in life there is suffering. Second, suffering has causes. Third, the causes of suffering can cease. And lastly, there is a, a path, a way to cease suffering. So those psychological states in our daily life, such as anger, fear, resentment, pride, vanity, these elements are conditions. They are not the true nature of consciousness, who we really fundamentally are in our depth. But the problem is that due to mistaken action, we have conditioned our psyche. We may like to blame other people for our suffering, maybe at our job, our friends, our coworkers, one's spouse, one's loved ones. But the fact is that regardless of the impressions of life that emerge, enter within us, such as uh, someone insults us, says something negative, we are responsible for our own psychological states the elements of pride, resentment, anger, fear, frustration. These elements are something that we created and which are not our true self. They are not our true identity. Meditation is about learning to develop and break away the conditions of the soul, consciousness, so that we are radiantly absorbed in our own true nature, which is light, which is happiness contentment. The problem is that we have psychologically conditioned ourselves. We have put a cage around who we are. Because anger, fear, hatred, egotism, these are elements that we created and that we are responsible for changing. But the first step of any practice is simply looking within to recognize the first noble truth that life, in life there is suffering. But also that there are causes which are psychological. And the fact of observation helps us to see within ourselves what those states are, what those elements are. What are those cages which trap and limit us, which make us vibrate at a very level, low level of being, of behaving. So every religion teaches how to break those shells in their fundamental heart. Whether in these times that teaching has been being disseminated is another thing. But all religions we teach in their very root essence explain the signs of meditation. How to observe oneself. How to understand why we suffer. And to understand those cages that we created so that we can, by seeing them, eliminate them by the grace of divinity. Because as Buddha Shakyamuni, his title of Buddha simply means awakened one, cognizant one, stated that our life is shaped by our mental states, our psychological way of being. We tend to like to look at the exterior, that it is the exterior world that makes us suffer. But the science of meditation, introspection, teaches us to see where those causes of suffering exist so that by understanding them, they may cease. Because preceded by mind are phenomena. Led by mind 
formed by mind. If with mind polluted one speaks or acts, then pain follows as a wheel follows the draft ox's foot. Preceded by mind are phenomena, led by mind, formed by mind. If with mind pure one speaks or acts, then ease follows as an ever-present shadow. So the East, the Eastern doctrines teach the law of karma, which simply means cause and effect. How do our actions produce happiness? How do our actions produce suffering? And understanding the basis of this law of cause and effect, we can change. And thereby we learn to change the state of humanity as it is. Because any fundamental revolution of a spiritual type does not occur as a result of focusing on the exterior, but becoming psychologically united in oneself, integral, not being dispersed or distracted by the psychological elements of anger, resentment, ego. Because these psychological states determine our our life. If we speak with anger in a certain situation, we suffer the consequences, produce problems, difficulties, ordeals. But if we learn to change our way of being, our level of consciousness, we learn to respond with life with a sense of rectitude, with purity. Because the mind, without thinking, our ways of feeling and our ways of acting as it is, tends to be egotistical, focused on me, myself, what I want, what I crave, what I desire, what I want to do. And usually at the expense of other people. So the mind, with its conditions, its factors of limitation, are precisely a form of pollution. It is uh, the negativity of the conditioning of the psyche. So anger is a polluted emotion, a negative mental state. Likewise, the different religious explanations, such as the seven deadly sins of Christianity or the ten non-meritorious actions of Buddhism. These all refer to different negative states of being, which, if we comprehend them at their root, we can then awaken and free our consciousness from those conditions. So as I said, consciousness is light. The ability to perceive beyond thought, beyond feeling, beyond impulse. It is the ability to observe, to be attentive, Now, when I say that the consciousness is beyond thought, it is beyond emotion, it is beyond impulse, this does not mean that the consciousness is without feeling or understanding. Because the consciousness, when it is radiantly absorbed in its true nature, is pure, is happiness, serenity, content. These are the virtues of the soul mentioned in the different religious cosmogonies and traditions. But typically, egotism, hatred, fear, these elements constitute our psychological daily state of suffering and refer to the darkness of the book of Genesis on the first day. So the Bible teaches that the earth was formless and void and the darkness was upon the face of the deep of the abyss. People literally interpret this to mean some type of physical creation story but it's something psychological. 
That darkness is us, our mind. When we look within, if we observe our problems, our daily experience, when we look within, we tend to see an abyss, very dark, without divinity. But we have to remember, as taught within the religious scriptures, which we interpret in a symbolic manner. There is the ability and the hope to transform one's psyche because as the, the book of Genesis in Hebrew, Bereshit, speaks of, it says, Elohim created, uh, said, let there be light, and there was light. So divinity, we're not referring to some old man in the clouds with a beard, but as presence, as consciousness, as omniscience, pure happiness, a way of being. And really in our fundamental heart, we have God within, the being, the presence of divinity within us as a light. And we as a consciousness emanated from that source. But due to our mistakes, our consciousness entered into states of conditioning, as I mentioned, creating egotism. So by certain exercises of meditation that we, pre- that we perform and practice, we learn to awaken consciousness, awaken light, so that divinity in us can say, let there be light. Let there be consciousness, understanding of the causes of suffering in oneself, so that by irradiating that light within oneself, one can change. One can eliminate that problem, that pain. As Samael and Vior, the founder of the modern Gnostic tradition, wrote in The Great Rebellion, consciousness is the light which the unconscious does not perceive. A blind person does not perceive physical solar light either, but it does exist by itself. We need to open ourselves so that the light of consciousness can penetrate the terrible darkness of the me, myself, the I, meaning our egotism, our desires, our passions, our negativity. That sense of me, myself, what I want, what I crave, is ego. Because in Latin, the word ego means I. Yet, sadly, we have invested our energy into that sense of identity, which is negative, and have forgotten what the light of pure divinity is. So we tend to live in an unconscious state. This is what Buddhism teaches, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Sufism. Darkness being on the face of the deep is our unconscious state of being which is remediated by receiving the light of divinity precisely through the work of meditation, of Genesis, as uh, practices symbolized in that scripture. So now we can better understand the meaning of John's words when he said in the gospel, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So light is perception, knowing, understanding, serenity. Whereas our states of suffering and egotism is the darkness of the myself, the ego. So the scripture known as Atma Bodha, meaning self-knowledge, from Atman Bodhi, or self-wisdom, self-knowledge, 
written by uh, Shankaracharya, gave some very beautiful verses about this science of light, of understanding oneself. And he explains how it is only by learning to look within oneself through the direct act of observing that one can change. Because to know that we are seated in this chair is one thing. But to observe where we are at, to be aware of what we are doing, driving our car, fulfilling our obligations, that is a very different psychological quality. And it is very distinct. Knowledge is of the intellect, the mind, thought, whereas comprehension or understanding is of the heart, the consciousness, the soul. He explains that consciousness can only be developed through the act of seeing. And he composed this scripture for people who were very disciplined about their practice. So uh, this scripture was originally for people who were meditating for hours daily as a means of breaking the conditions of the mind. People were very dedicated. But even if we're new to meditation, these words are very valuable. I am composing the Atma Bodha, this treatise of knowledge of the self, for those who have purified themselves by austerities, many practices of meditation, denying the self what it wants, denying the ego, denying anger by not speaking words of harm, by denying fear by being in remembrance of divinity, as likewise denying lust, desire, by abstention of certain habits and, and uh, behaviors, which are harmful. So this is for those who have purified themselves by austerities, who are peaceful in heart and calm. Many people who sit to meditate, who can remain focused throughout an entire practice, not get distracted, who have serenity and concentration, the ability to focus on one thing without distraction. Likewise, for people who are free from cravings, desires, and who are desirous of liberation, meaning the, the complete emancipation of the consciousness from conditions. Just as the fire is the direct cause for cooking, so knowledge, and not any other form of discipline, is the direct cause of liberation. Liberation from suffering cannot be attained without knowledge. So what is this knowledge? It has nothing to do with books, with reading from a scripture, or simply limiting oneself to a lecture. Instead, this is direct knowledge, knowing oneself. Conscious wisdom, which the Greeks have called Gnosis, the Sufis have called Marifa in Arabic, the Kabbalists of Israel called Da'at. So action cannot destroy ignorance. So this word ignorance, people in the West tend to think, has to do with people who don't read, who are not educated. But if you look at the etymology of this word, you find the word gnosis in Greek, knowledge, and the prefix I, which means without. So to be without knowledge, to be ignorant, is precisely the state of our being here and now. To suffer in life without really understanding the psychological causes of that pain. Without understanding how anger in ourselves, these elements, these conditions, trap us. That is what it means to be ignorant, to not have light, to be as asleep, to be asleep as a consciousness, to constantly react to life 
day by day, repetitively, mechanically, going along the same track of behavior until the day we die. That is a very profound form of ignorance because nothing has changed fundamentally. The way that we can fundamentally learn to live life with a sense of spirituality, of remembrance of God, is precisely by learning to observe ourselves. Because we commit many actions which are negative, which are egotistical. As the scripture states, action cannot destroy ignorance. For it is not in conflict with or opposed to ignorance. Because our egos, our sense of I, myself, our defects, these act in ways which are detrimental, harmful. So, action, cause and effect, does not necessarily guarantee one will behave or work in a conscious way, responding to life and others with purity, with rectitude, and with compassion. Knowledge, self-knowledge, self-observation of oneself, destroys ignorance as light destroys deep darkness. So again, this knowledge is when in a moment of interaction with our friends, our family, we are observant. Someone says something very negative. And in that moment, we observe the fires of anger emerging, resentment, etc. But if we learn to observe that element, how that conditions us in that instant, we learn to free ourselves from that condition and therefore experience liberation, peace. That is self-knowledge. So every religion in the beginning of any meditative practice emphasizes the need for ethics, learning to act in ways that are going to be beneficial for others so that we don't harm ourselves, harm others. So this is the, these are the religious stipulations of different traditions. Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't fornicate, don't be negative, don't be harmful to others because... The ways that we act psychologically attract energy. And if we act on negativity, we waste energy. So energy is very important for awakening consciousness. Obviously, we need energy to be physically awake day by day. But we rarely tend to see how egotism and negative psychological qualities waste energy. If we act upon anger, we find that we we're depleted or wasted. So with what energy can we awaken consciousness? So every religion teaches, restrain the mind, don't act on negativity because you waste energy that way. You need energy to awaken consciousness because light cannot exist without fire. So that fire represents the energies of the, the body, the heart, the mind, which we need to conserve so that with the energy, that fire, we can generate consciousness. So we see here the Sabbath candles being lit by a woman or lit by a woman of the Jewish faith. So the Sabbath is a very beautiful tradition. And in that practice, the woman lights the altar with her family. If you're not familiar with Judaism, the woman of the household takes her hands, passes it over the candle flame, and then over the eyes and the head. It's a symbol of how we must learn to purify our perception. We do that by observing ourselves, becoming aware of ourselves, and also refraining from negative thought, 
negative feeling, negative action. So when our, eye, when our spiritual eyes are awakened and opened, we learn to uh, live life with greater joy and contentment. So that light of consciousness has been given different names in different religions. In the Christian faith, that light of divinity is known as Christos, which in Greek means fire, from the Greek god of fire. It also means anointed one, which has many beautiful traditions and meanings behind it, of which we don't have the time to explain today. But that light of divinity is not limited to one person, but is manifested in different prophets and teachers, whether Buddha, Jesus, Krishna, Moses, Muhammad, many religious uh, teachers, missionaries, prophets. So Jesus gave a very beautiful teaching about the light of consciousness, about the path of purifying and breaking the shells of egotism, fear, etc. He explains in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 22 to 23, uh, something very profound, which, if you look at the original Greek, has many more meanings than what is commonly translated in English. You may be familiar, if you've grown up in a Christian household, the following teaching. The eye is the illumination of the, of the soma, which they translate as body. If thine eye be singular, thy whole self or whole body will be full of light. Yet if thine eye be impure, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. Therefore, if that light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? So if you look at the Greek, you find that there's more meanings than just a reference to physical sight and the physical body. That's not the meaning of what he's teaching. He's teaching that the eye is the illumination of the self. Because soma can mean soul or consciousness. How we perceive determines our life. How do we see, how do we act, interact with every human being of which we come into contact? If thine eye be singular, coming from the Greek aplos, really meaning clear, simple, uncomplicated, pure, thy whole self shall be full of light. So we can observe ourselves in meditation or reflect on our daily states. We find that we tend to be very complicated. We're not simple. To be simple doesn't mean to be stupid. It just means to be pure. A mind that is, or consciousness and mind that is integrated, that is not caught in distractions, daydreams, memories, fears. Instead, it refers to having a, an attention and a consciousness that is so focused and directed at one thing that it learns to receive information about that thing. And there are many meditative practices, such as meditating on God, the being, the divine, so that when the mind is in silence, it is pure. When the mind is not complicated, fractured in many different elements, that consciousness can experience the divine, the truth. So, to be clear and simple, uncomplicated, pure, refers to psychological states, that are holy, divine, referring to being, awareness, contentment, presence, awareness. So if thine eye be impure, poneros, or poneros, thy whole self shall be full of darkness. And therefore, if the light in thee is darkness, how great is that darkness? 
So many Christians interpret it simply to refer to having one eye that's singular and that if one can't see, well, they have many moral interpretations too. But in terms of consciousness, it refers to our level of being, our way of being. So take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body, or self, soma, therefore be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. So that light is attention, awareness, connection with the being, with divinity. And this dynamic is represented by the following graphic. So to have light, to be aware, to be awake, is to be constantly in the present moment, to not be distracted, to be here and now, to be in the body as a consciousness, to not be driving our car, thinking about our fiancé, our spouse, our friends, to be washing our dishes and to not be thinking of other things, but to be doing what we're doing, being aware, not thinking of other things, not planning other things, not being consumed by anguish by what someone said to us earlier in the day at work. So light is precisely that act of directed attention, being in oneself, and not thinking about other things when we're focusing on one thing. So I know in this day and age, we like to think of ourselves as multitaskers, but the problem is that we tend to be distracted. This type of behavior is one that justifies the fragmentation of a consciousness. Because if you're thinking of other things and, and not paying attention to what you're doing, it means that we're not awake. It means that we as a consciousness are asleep, that we're in darkness. So we see in this graphic a representation of this dynamic. We have two lines that intersect, one horizontal, one vertical. The horizontal line is the line of life, represented by our birth, our childhood, our adolescence, our college years, or young adult years, maturity, old age, death. This is the life, or this is the line of mechanicity. Simply going through life, hoping things will be better, will change fundamentally, that we will receive some type of joy by getting that new job, that new spouse, that new car, that new home. And many of the things that are idolized by our material culture, especially in North America. But there's another line that is much more meaningful and which concerns any practitioner of meditation. Is the vertical path known as the line of being. These two lines intersect in this moment. The line of being, which ascends up towards the heights, refers to states of consciousness, ways of perception, which are not conditioned, which are liberated from the negative elements we've been discussing, the conditions. But also you find that this vertical line descends and that refers to the states of egotism. So the path above refers in religion to heavens or nirvana. So when people talk about heaven or nirvana, they usually think of some place in the clouds as some type of afterlife that is above oneself. But they fail to recognize that 
Really, heaven is a psychological way of being, a state of perception. Because the word nirvana means cessation, to cease suffering. And if we want to experience what religion has called heaven as well, higher dimensions, awakened states of perception in the dream world, being out of the body through an astral projection, be awake in that state, we have to cease suffering. Because the consciousness needs to vibrate at that level of nature. Because everything obeys laws cause and effect. If you want to experience the divine, you need to vibrate at that level of being by removing the conditions of the consciousness. But if we don't remove those conditions, then we identify with those problems, our sufferings. We invest our energy into those problems, into those defects, and therefore we strengthen the conditions that trap us. So this is the vertical path. And this vertical path, and we're in this present moment, we have a choice to make psychologically to either remember what we're doing, to be listening, to be attentive, to be paying attention, to be driving our car, not thinking of other things, being focused on what we're doing. That refers to the path of the vertical because if we are actively observing ourselves, being awake, being aware, we then learn to access higher ways of being, levels of being, the virtues of the soul. But again, we can choose to identify with our own negativity, our egotism, the me, the myself, the I, the ego. Shakespeare, who was an esotericist, demonstrated in his soliloquy through Hamlet this dilemma that people face or that we face when we're initiating this type of work of meditation. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether to nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. So to be or not to be, if you're familiar with this play, uh, Hamlet is trying to decide what he's going to do to get revenge over the death of his father, Claudius. Or the, the death of his father, the King Hamlet, who was killed by his brother, Claudius, or Uncle Claudius, relating to Hamlet. To be conscious or not to be conscious. To be aware or not to be aware. That is the question. Whether we go through life identifying with every single difficulty we face, Suffering, mechanically. The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Or to take arms against a sea of troubles by learning to look within oneself and to understand the sources of our our problems. And by opposing them, by observing them in meditation, by learning to comprehend their roots, we end them. This line of life in line of being also refers to how we interact with the physical world. Precisely because people gravitate towards other groups or uh, religions, beliefs, philosophies, ideas, based on their level of being. So it's easy to see that a prostitute will, will be with other prostitutes, a lawyer with other lawyers, a student with other students a spiritual person with other spiritual people. 
this is very commonly known as the law of attraction. What we are psychologically attracts different circumstances of life. So what we are psychologically determines the type of quality of life that we have, whether it's materialistic or spiritual or whatnot. So Samayalam Vayor, the founder of our, this tradition, he wrote in a book called Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology. Nobody can deny the fact that there are different social levels. There are church-going people, people in brothels, farmers, businessmen, etc. In a like manner, there are different levels of being. Whatever we are internally, munificent or mean, generous or miserly, violent or peaceful, chaste or lustful, attracts the various circumstances of life. So someone who changes within their interior will learn to vibrate with higher levels of divinity, of being, and will likewise come into contact with those people or initiates, those beings, who have done this same work before, or who have, are in the process of doing this type of meditative path that we teach in this school. So the religions often talk about angels, archangels, gods, Elohim, Buddhas. These are beings and people who have, were once like us, who were afflicted with many issues. And yet, by comprehending the root causes of their problems, learn to ascend the vertical path, which, if you're familiar with the Bible, uh, this is represented by Jacob's ladder. So Jacob put his head to sleep. He put himself to sleep while resting his head on a stone and had a vision of angels ascending and descending, referring to how different beings can either ascend towards higher heights of divinity or can descend into suffering. So when we learn to change, as we learn meditation, we can experience many things. If you're familiar with the science of dream yoga, known as the awakening of consciousness in dreams, you may have the experiences where physically your body is asleep, but you as a consciousness are in the astral plane, the world of dreams. And there in that dimension, instead of dreaming things mechanically and then returning to the physical body without any memories or with some vague memories of dreams, we instead learn to perceive that dimension as it is. And therefore we can learn to perform works of magic, which is to invoke those divine beings, the Buddhas, the angels, the masters, so that they can teach us. And therefore, you learn to vibrate at that level of being, that, that type of dimension. And personally, if I'm teaching this to you, it's because I do that. And I have many experiences because of learning meditation where I've, being help, where I've been helped and I'm being helped. So this is why I, I seek to teach others how to do the same. Because by learning to ascend to a higher level of being, we learn to work and to be in communion with the angels, who are, again, perfect beings, who were once like us. Buddhas, masters, who overcame their own sufferings. So the story in the Bible of the prodigal son teaches something very profound as well. Because in this story, which is a parable, a symbolic tale, not a literal teaching, there was a young man who 
took his father's wealth and left his kingdom, traveled very far away and wasted his money on vain pleasures, prostitution, you could say drugs and many other distractions that people in our present time are very addicted to. But there came a remorse in this man's heart when he recognized that his actions were making him suffer, were giving him pain. And that he understood that in order to change, he had to return to his father back in his home uh, country. So he returned, and his father came out along with his two other brothers who greeted him with a lot of joy. And the saying is that, or the saying from uh, Salma Island Vior about this tale is, you know, there is more joy for someone who is repented than a thousand just people who have no need for repentance. So again, repentance means recognition of the causes of suffering. It doesn't mean some moral dogma that one says, I am a bad person, and one flagellates oneself. It's a very morbid mentality that many people adopt. But remorse is simply recognizing psychologically how we are at fault in circumstances that pertain to our daily life. And by learning to change them, to observe them, in action, to observe the mind, the emotions, the body, and every interaction of life, we generate light. We learn to create more happiness for others, which guarantees our success. So the prodigal son was a person, which represents any one of us, who experiences and recognizes the need to change and to make some type of effort to learn about oneself. And that father in this parable refers to divinity, which is a, a, Christian, a Christian appellation referring to uh, the father who, our, the, our Father who art in heaven, which is not some old man in the clouds, as I said, but the being, the divine, a presence, a light. So Samael and Vior states in Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology some questions that help to frame this discussion. What is our moral level? Or better said, what is our level of being? The repetition of all our miseries, scenes, misfortunes, and mishaps will last as long as the level of our being does not radically change. All things, all circumstances that occur outside ourselves on the stage of this world are exclusively the reflection of what we carry within. So when we see violence on television... We see exploitation. We see degeneration. If we're observing ourselves and learning to see ourselves with consciousness, we will find with great discomfort that we contain these elements that we are ignorant of, that we're unaware of. I believe it was uh, Mother Teresa was asked, you know, why are you so compassionate? Why do you work so much and suffer so much for other people and help them materially? She said something like, because I looked at myself and I realized I have Hitler in me, therefore I want to atone for that negativity, that ego or self, that sense of I that produces pain. So the, the exterior is simply a mirror to look in within ourselves. And daily interactions with others is the means, the method by which we learn to see ourselves, to discover ourselves those hidden defects which we never assumed that we had or could imagine having. 
So with good reason then, we can solemnly declare that the exterior is the reflection of the interior. When someone changes internally, and if that change is radical, then circumstances, life, and the external also change. So this type of work is a revolution. Does it mean to fight against some political party outside oneself? But to go against that current of degeneration we carry within and to transform ourselves through perception, through awakening consciousness, by eliminating lust, pride, anger, gluttony, greed, and all those defects which we carry within. And that path of a revolution has been taught within Islam, which sadly, that tradition has terribly degenerated, become very negative. The word for uh, striving, to strive against oneself, to go against that current of egotism in, in, in one's psyche, is known by the Arabic term mujahidah, which is where you get the word jihad. Now, people who, in these times, they talk about this, they think it refers to killing people physically who don't follow one's beliefs, one's ideas. But it's a symbolic teaching, how we have to strive against ourselves to not act upon our defects, to not give our defects what they want, the energy of our consciousness. So this word, mujahidah, has been translated as jihad, which literally means to strive, to make effort, to go against the flow. Now, people have translated this to mean holy war, but in truth, in the original Arabic, jihad doesn't mean holy war. There's other words in Arabic for war, such as haribun, kisam, sari, ida, katal, waga. Jihad is not one of them. Actually, that term comes from the Christian appellation of the Crusades, which was then later translated into Arabic. But the important thing to remember is that when you are observing yourselves in the day and you're attentive, you're interacting with your boss at work, you may see certain elements emerge, like some type of resistance, negativity, doubt, anger, whatever element we have in our relationships with, uh, with others in life. We may be criticized by our boss and we feel fear emerge, negativity, pride, a whole conglomeration of faults and defects which surge in a few instants. But if we're observant, we can see them and their sources. When you don't act upon that type of negativity, you are striving against yourself. You're performing a holy war, meaning the war for divinity, so that the presence and light of consciousness can emanate within you without those faults, without those conditions. So there's a saying from a book called Principles of Sufism, which is the uh, mystical or esoteric interpretation of Islam, just as the Gnostics interpret the Bible and the the Christian doctrine in a symbolic way. So this is from a hadith, which is an oral tradition, talking about the life of Prophet Muhammad, who again is a figure who is grossly misunderstood today, of which you know, we will be giving courses about this topic in the future. But in synthesis, we find some teachings that were given that relate 
to our topic today. Abu Hasin Ali bin Akmar ibn Abdad reported that Abu Sa'id al-Khudri said that a man went to the Prophet Muhammad and said, O Prophet of God, advise me. He said, Be wary of God, the being, for in it is a gathering all good. For in it is gathered all good. This is a verse from the Quran. Take upon yourself war for God's sake, for it is the monasticism of the Muslim, meaning someone who submits to divinity, which is an appellation that really refers to people who are meditating or seeking to comprehend and develop light. Now, whether one calls oneself Muslim because they follow certain exoteric traditions is one thing, but to submit to divinity is uh, profound. We do it through our actions. And he also said, take upon yourself the remembrance of God, for it is a light for you. So to be wary of God means to be aware, to be awake, to pay attention, moment by moment. Because how we use our energy determines our life. If you give in to fear and anger and all these defects, you're investing your own demonic qualities, negative qualities. So when the religions talk about demons and devils and, and sorts of negative beings, those refer to all the different elements we carry within. So the word in Hebrew is shaitan, which is where you get the word Satan. Shaitan means adversary. Because in a moment of anger, we don't remember God. We speak harm. We think harm. That anger concentrates all our attention into what it wants. We feed that element. So that type of emotion is really crazy because it can't produce any good. That type of emotion only wants to harm, create suffering for others. And if we're observant, we find that in that element, we are suffering very intensely. We're vibrating at a low level of being. And it was stated by Muhammad, he said that uh, the greatest among you is he who controls his anger. One thing I like to relate to when talking about this very controversial topic of holy war is uh, a saying that was given after he was defending himself from, in a battle. He was fighting against, physically, many people who were trying to kill him. And in different religions, we call them black magicians, sorcerers, devils, demons. People who work very intentionally to develop and strengthen the conditioning of the psyche, who have certain abilities and powers through the, through the ego, through the self of I. So there were many people who were trying to physically kill him, so he was instructed, defend yourself physically. That's one meaning of uh, jihad, to strive against others as a defense to protect oneself. Now, his companions were speaking with him after one of these battles, I think it was Badr, and he, the prophet told them, can you tell me what is the two forms of war? And they said, no, please instruct us. One of them, he said, is war against others, to defend yourself. Meaning from demons, black magicians, sorcerers, people who are trying to harm you. But there is a greater holy war, a greater striving. And they asked him, well, what is that? And he said, war against your desires, against yourself. So take upon yourself the remembrance of God. Be awake. Be here moment by moment. Pay attention, for that is a light for you.
which brings us into the discussion of what remembrance is, awareness is. So many people follow certain doctrines of religion, a belief system in which they pray, such as in Islam, five times a day, or in Judaism, they perform the Sabbath, Christians go to church. These are very mechanical uh, ways of being, interpretations and beliefs that by attending a group, by doing a certain mantra, by doing this or that, following a certain stricture or code of conduct, one is going to be in worship. But really, as the Sufis teach, the best act of worship is watchfulness of the moments, the remembrance of divinity, to develop light. So as I mentioned to you, you're at work or in a job and you face some criticism from one's boss, we develop light and we are worshiping divinity when we are aware of ourselves, we're present, and that we don't give in to those negative qualities which are going to create problems for economically or socially or whatnot. So the best act of worship is watchfulness, to be aware, to have light, to be observing oneself, and to learn to act in upright ways. So that is that the servant not look beyond his limit, nor contemplate anything other than his Lord, the being, the presence of God, and not associate with anything other than his present moment. So what does it mean to not look beyond one's limit? This refers to very uh, elevated levels of being, states of consciousness, in which your inner divinity enters in you and gives you certain consciousness and experiences, bless, blessings, bliss, which don't come from you, but come from your being, the light, the divine, which is very well described in the schools of Sufism. So one has to learn to receive the presence of divinity in oneself and to not transgress one's limit, to do what one is ordered to do by that your own being, your own inner divinity. So one must contemplate nothing but one's Lord, meaning don't think of other things when you're doing something. Don't get distracted. And don't associate with anything other than the present moment. So as I mentioned to you, we tend to, we tend to be distracted by many things. We associate with things other than divinity, such as the negative egos or qualities we've been discussing. Defects. In Islam, a tradition that has been greatly abused and misunderstood is known as uh, the doctrine of unity. Which, you know, if you're familiar with that tradition, they say there is no God but God. There's only one God. God is one. That light is one. If we look in ourselves... We have many elements which are disparate, fractioned, egotistical. All those elements we discussed, ego, fear, pride, gluttony, those are all separate defects which have their, their own autonomy, which clash and, and uh, fight against one another. If we're observing ourselves, we can see this. So the doctrine of unity is the doctrine of taking the consciousness that is trapped and all those elements, and uniting it with the being, with the divine. That's the meaning of religion, because the Latin religare means to reunite, the same as the Sanskrit yoga, from the Sanskrit yug to unite. So if we identify ourselves with 
our defects, we're practicing what is known as shirk, idolatry. Because when you give in to these elements, we are not remembering God. We're not remembering the divine. We're not remembering the being. And so that is a form of idol worship. So people think idol worship has to do with worshiping a statue, which is, you know, people in the Middle East made a big deal of others worshiping statues and they fought with them. That's not the meaning. The meaning is that anger, hatred, wrath, these are elements that are idols in the mind. Stones, conditions which have trapped our consciousness and which we need to eliminate. To break those shells so that the light can perform unity, can unite, the consciousness can return to God. And we give in to our defects when we're distracted, which is our, tends to be our psych- psychological state all day. So to associate with things other than God refers to the concept of idolatry, to worship things not related to divinity, to be identified with those things, to be distracted. So this path of meditation teaches one to unite all the parts of the soul so that there is unity. A very old scripture known as the Laws of Manu explains that by renouncing desire, one learns to achieve liberation, freedom of the soul. But by giving in to desire, again, this law of cause and effect in action, we strengthen the cage, as I've been explaining. Through attachment of his organs to sensual pleasure, such as the acts of lust, a man will doubtlessly incur guilt. But if you keep them under complete control, he will obtain success in gaining all his aims. So this is a very deep topic relating to how we use energy, especially the creative energy, which is known as uh, the sexual energy itself, which certain traditions teach how to conserve that light, that energy, which is a form of fire, and to transform it. And through meditative discipline, one uses that energy to awaken consciousness. But by losing that energy, one depletes oneself of the very fire that can awaken the soul and develop it fully. So the scripture also teaches that desire is never extinguished by the enjoyment of desired objects. It only grows stronger like a fire fed with clarified butter. So in this culture, we like to think that by expressing our anger, we somehow reach some type of uh, nullification of desire. By giving in to our desires, giving ourselves what we want, what we feel that we deserve, that we will find peace. But it's that act of craving, which is precisely the origin of suffering. So by feeding those desires, those defects, one feeds and conditions oneself further. Feeds the fire of passion, which makes one suffer. So we've been talking about the nature of consciousness and how one must be mindful moment by moment, day by day. And I also mentioned that one must learn to conserve energy. We also have to talk about understanding different levels of energy, which are graded in different dimensions and aspects of consciousness, represented by uh, a uh, Judeo-Christian, or better said, a Jewish glyph known as the Tree of Life. So this image is a map of consciousness. It also refers to different levels of perception and different dimensions. 
More basically, it refers to who we are here and now. So this tree of life is a symbol in the book of Genesis of the complete human being and its different levels of matter, energy, and consciousness. So by learning to understand the different forms of energy in ourselves, we can learn to awaken consciousness, to learn these energies in us, use these energies in us for our development. It is not possible to increase consciousness by exclusively physical or mechanical procedures. Undoubtedly, the consciousness can only awaken through conscious work and voluntary suffering. So this word voluntary suffering creates a lot of tension in many people. But it refers to a type of effort in oneself, as I've been explaining, in which we willingly learn to take responsibility for our actions, our mind stream, our conditioning. And to work consciously refers to observing oneself, learning to become aware of what traps us, what makes us limited, what harms us psychologically. So to voluntarily suffer means to make that effort, to go against oneself. Obviously, there's great turmoil and suffering in oneself when one realizes the causes of suffering in the psyche. Because it's a very painful experience to understand that we are responsible for um, our state of being, our way of being, our life. So one voluntarily suffers by going against the desires of the self by learning to awaken the consciousness free of conditions to develop that light. So that light is developed by working with energy, by empowering the consciousness through exercises working with energy. Within us, there are various types of energy which we must understand. First, mechanical energy, relating to this bottom sphere of the tree of life, which in Hebrew refers to the word malkut, which means kingdom. This is our physical body. So our physical body has energy relating to the mechanics of our chemistry, our physiology, metabolism, catabolism, which intimately relates to vital energy, which in Hebrew is known as yesod, meaning foundation. So our work is the foundation of yesod, working with that energy, the creative energies of God. In the third sephira, we find our sphere of this tree of life, we find the energy of the psyche, known in Hebrew as hod. We also have mental energy relating to the mind. Fifth, we have energy relating to willpower. Sixth is the energy of consciousness, which is deeply concerns us. And seventh, we have the energy of the spirit, which is the being, the, the inner God within us. So it's important to analyze ourselves and understand how these different forms of energy work. When we wake up in the morning, we have a certain limit or certain amount of mechanical energy, the ability to function in this body before needing to rest again. Until finally we reach the end of our life and the body goes to the grave. We also have vital energy, which is essential. This vital energy animates the physical body. It gives it life. It is the creative energy, especially the sexual energy, which invigorates and is the source of all life, of all genesis. 
And so this vital energy, as I explained, animates the body. And when we physically go to sleep, this vital energy helps to regenerate the physical body when we rest. So that when we wake up in the morning, we're uh, uh, repleted so that we can function throughout our day. The word astral projection, or the term astral projection, refers to when the consciousness, the psyche, leaves the physical body behind and the vital energies in order to enter the world of dreams, known as the the world of Hod and Kabbalah, this tree of life. We enter the dream world as a consciousness because the physical body needs to rest and get recharged by the vital body, the vital energies. Again, these bodies refer to different levels of matter in different dimensions, which exist here and now. They're with us, present. I also said that the, this fourth sphere is the, the, the mind, the mental energy. And it's easy to see all of this in ourselves, here and now, and how all of these factors integrate our present. We have our physical body, which we're in now, that we're aware of. We may be sensitive to a certain amount of vital energy, being able to pay attention or to uh, be awake, to be able to do certain physical activities. We also may be aware of our, our emotions, the energies of the psyche on this glyph. And likewise, we have thought, ideas, memories, conceptions, beliefs, concepts. This is the mind, mental energy. So in the meditation we practiced, we were becoming aware of those elements. So that's the lower aspect of ourselves, of who we fundamentally are, these four lower spheres. Below that you have what's known as the hell realms, which is the, the ego, the I, and the myself, the conditioning of the soul. Above that we had the higher levels of being. So we are in Malkut, with the possibility of ascending up the vertical path, which is this tree of life, this diagram, which is not something vertical in space, but refers to qualities of being, as I've been explaining. If we're observant of ourselves, and if we really reflect on the nature of our mind, we may find that we discover something more subtle, which is known as a willpower. We know certain people have a certain will, the ability to direct themselves with a lot of effort, a lot of strength. That's willpower. Energy of will, volition. But willpower depends on something else above it. So these spheres, they penetrate one another, they relate to one another, and integrate in beings that are fully developed spiritually. But in us, these elements tend to be disorganized, distracted. We have the sphere of consciousness, referring to the divine qualities of the soul. And they have the energies of the spirit, which is our inner being, our inner divinity. So these energies are important to see in oneself. We may sense our body. We have certain energies available vitally. Emotionally, we have certain moods. Mentally, we have certain thoughts. Beyond that is will, which is more subtle, as I said, which has to do with the ability to pay attention, to direct oneself, to concentrate. So if you want to see how I have a... Have a litmus test of how well or how much willpower you have. When you sit for meditation, see how long you can stay focused, not forgetting what you're doing. If you're meditating on a, on a scripture or a, 
a lecture or an image, focusing on the breath, becoming aware of the breath, known as anapana in Sanskrit, you'll find that if you get distracted easily and can't focus on the, your attention on the, the purpose of the practice, it means that the willpower is not strong enough. It needs to be developed. So willpower is concentration, the ability to focus on one thing without distraction. And beyond that is consciousness, which is the ability to understand, to comprehend what one is meditating on through insight, which emerges in the psyche like a spark, a flash in intuition and understanding, which that understanding emanates from the spirit, which is our inner divinity, our being, which most people have no cognizance of, no experience with, but which we can interact face-to-face with in the world of dreams, through the symbols of dreams. Above that, we have the Trinity, which is the Christian Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which is a trinity of forces, energies, states of consciousness which are very high, very developed. So it doesn't refer to people. It refers to states of being. So why study energy in relation to consciousness? Because we do need to work with these lower aspects of ourselves to conserve those energies, so that we can develop our consciousness, to have them in control. But strictly working with one form of energy over another does not develop the consciousness. We have to work with everything that makes up who we are. And in different traditions, there are different practices that are given, usually at the exclusion of developing the other types of the consciousness. Some schools focus on the mind, developing book knowledge, study of the intellect through yoga or certain forms of yoga, not just physical calisthenics. You also have monks who practice and work with the heart, who develop the emotions, who do a lot of prayer, usually at the exclusion of other aspects of the psyche, like willpower, the mind, etc. There are those who learn to work with willpower as well, who try to control the physical body, like fakirs. So if you're familiar with fakirism, it refers to certain practitioners who learn to train the body so well that, for instance, there was one man who raised his hand up and never put it down. He wanted to test his willpower. And he lost all feeling in his arm and the nerves were dead. He wanted to show through his will that he could control his body, thinking that this was a path that's going to take him to divinity. But sadly, that is very foolish, obviously, for people who are educated, who know better. So exclusively developing the mind, the emotions, our willpower, cannot awaken the consciousness exclusively, the soul. Some island VR states in the Great Rebellion. No matter how much we might increase our strictly mechanical energy, we will never awaken consciousness. No matter how much we might increase the vital forces within our own organism, we will never awaken consciousness. This refers to you know, people, especially in the West, who may consume a lot of coffee, try to have more energy, more vital force. Just having that vital force alone is not going to awaken the soul, develop the consciousness. Likewise, simply doing exercises of pranayama or energy work, mantras, sacred sounds, circulating energy, that by itself is not going to be enough, but, in, but there's more to it to develop the light of consciousness. Many psychological processes take place within us without any intervention from the consciousness, meaning we have many emotions and moods which fluctuate and change and sustain and, and 
uh, process themselves within us, but this does not mean that one is awake, one is conscious. This is very easy to see if you really examine and observe yourself. In one moment of the day, you may have a certain mood, but the next day you have a different, different one. So there's a fluctuation, there's no permanence there. But being conscious means to understand these elements fully. However great the disciplines of the mind might be, mental energy can never achieve the awakening of the diverse functions of the consciousness. There are many people who think that by developing the intellect, that they're developing self-knowledge, conscious knowledge. And uh, people who develop the intellect too much obviously get sick mentally because they waste energy in the intellect. People who deplete the mental energy become sick mentally. They develop sicknesses like schizophrenia, mental diseases. Likewise, people who abuse the emotional energy, like actors and actresses, they develop illnesses like relating to the heart, depression, things like that. There are people who abuse the energies of the vital force, Yasad and Makut, the physical body, like sports players, boxers, Usually they deplete their energy so much that physically they're debilitated. They can't walk. So you can see that using these energies are important to conserve them, not to waste them. Because we do need these energies in harmony to be balanced. But this quote is explaining that simply working on one of these elements alone is not going to awaken the soul, the light of divinity. Because even if our willpower is multiplied infinitely, like the case of the fakir who had his hand raised, 10 years, 15 years, never put it down. It can never bring about the awakening of the consciousness. Because having a lot of will is good, is admirable. But willpower needs to be directed. Because you see in this, this graphic, our willpower, our concentration, is one aspect of ourselves. It's at the very center of the tree of life, this graphic. It does emphasize the importance of the need for concentration. Because in meditation... If we're distracted for however long we sit to, to perform an exercise, it means that our willpower is scattered. We need to unify our will, concentrate it, focus on one thing without thinking about it, without feeling anticipation or worry or anxiety over it. And neither should we be identified with the energies of our physicality as well as our vital energies. All these types of energy are graded into different levels and dimensions which have nothing to do with the consciousness. So why talk about energy in relation to the light of perception? Because you do need energy to awaken, but in balance. As I said, simply developing the mind, the will, the heart is like going to the gym and only working on your right bicep, doing exercises, so that your body becomes huge, your right side of your body becomes huge, but everything else is weak. This is how certain people develop themselves in this world in relation to different traditions. But Samayal and Vior states that consciousness can only be awakened through conscious work and upright efforts. So the consciousness is this sphere of the tree of life known as Geburah, justice. It's interesting that the word for justice in Hebrew is related to this sphere of consciousness because how you act with awareness is how you obey the law of divinity how you fulfill justice, meaning to act with comprehension, 
with awareness of oneself, to respect the will of other beings, to be compassionate, to not give in to one's egotism so that one does not affect other human beings. That is a, a righteous person, a tzariq in Hebrew, a just person. Someone who knows how to act consciously for the benefit of others. But of course that involves directing the willpower towards any action using the mind, the emotions, the vital forces, or the physical body. Notice that this verticality represents gradations of energy more, from more dense to more rarefied, more subtle. What this represents is that the forces from above, from the divine, descend in, in a metaphorical sense, become more concrete in us. Obviously, being in Malkut, this physical body, we tend to be very identified with very material things. But if we work with meditation, we begin to sense these different forces in us and how they work. So consciousness is above will. Consciousness, as I said, is the ability to understand, to comprehend anything that we meditate on, anything that we focus on. But of course, consciousness has to direct will. You have to be aware as a consciousness and whatever will, your, whatever willpower you have through developing concentration, you direct towards anything that you want to understand. So these two factors are very important in meditation. Consciousness and willpower. Or the ability to perceive and the ability to focus oneself. So the consciousness only awakens through learning to direct attention. And by directing attention, you, le you learn to understand how these energies work. But if you just focus on energy, like many schools in these times discuss, it becomes uh, very limited. But we have to understand energy in their context. So the most profound form of energy, of divinity that we work with, is known in Hinduism as the Divine Mother. So different traditions teach that we have a divine masculine and a divine feminine aspect of consciousness which exists within the profundities of our heart. Divinity is an energy, is a force which is not limited to uh, any particular time, place, or uh, culture. But this is a universal force. And we work with the Divine Mother to work with that energy so that that force can break the shells of the ego, of the me, the myself, the I. So with meditation, we work very diligently with her, with the Divine Feminine, because without her, we cannot change. She is the origin of light, the origin of consciousness. She is the very power of the soul that can liberate us from suffering. She is known as Durga in Hinduism, Virgin Mary in the, amongst the Christians. She is Athena, the warrior goddess, who helps us to wage jihad, striving against our defects. We work with her every day, and when we're in remembrance of God, we are remembering her, her presence, her light, her force. In this myth that we have quoted here, we see that she is the most intense, primordial, pure, and divine energy 
which manifests from the Divine Father, Brahma. So she is an energy that is above consciousness and spirit. She is Bina, the Holy Spirit, the feminine aspect of the Holy Ghost, which again is a term for the powers of the Divine Mother, the creative energies. So I'd like to relate to you, in conclusion of this lecture, this, a beautiful myth that discusses what Durga is and why we must work with her. She is uh, the consciousness or the energy of the consciousness in its heights, in its most profound sense. She is the power of universal compassion of all the gods, of all the Buddhas, the angels, the masters. She is universal. And she is the intensity of the wrath of divinity that fights against the ego, which in this myth, she was created in order to defend and fight against a demon who has the shape of a bull, an ox. So this is a beautiful myth talking about the wars that the soul goes through psychologically in relation to this work of the ego on, the, on our defects. So I'd like to read this for you in its totality. Um, I will precurse this by saying that what happened in this myth is that this demon was taking power from the gods, was stealing the power of the gods. And what happens is that the gods were powerless to defend themselves against this demon, which was gigantic, a reference to the ego, our defects, which have usurped the rightful place of the divine in us. So when Vishnu, the husband of Lakshmi, and the great Lord Shiva heard the speech of Brahma, who basically told them and directed them to create Durga, their angry faces became so monstrous that one could not look upon them. From Vishnu's mouth, referring to Christ, Chokmah and Kabbalah, that blazed with extreme anger, his great energy came forth, and similarly, from Sambhu and from the Creator and from the bodies of Indra and all the other gods, the cruel energies came forth and they all become one. The great mass of their united energies seemed to all the multitudes of gods like a blazing mountain that pervaded all the regions of the sky with flames. Then from the combination of these energies, a certain woman appeared. Her head appeared from the energy of Shiva, her two arms from the energy of Vishnu, her two feet from the energies of Brahma, and from her waist from the energy of Indra. Her hair was made from Yama's energy, Lord of Death. Her two breasts from the moon's energy, relating to Yasod, the creative force. Her thighs from the energy of Varuna. Her hips from the earth's energy, Malkut. Her toes from the sun's energy, referring to the trinity on the top of the tree of life. Her fingers were formed with the energy of Vasus. Her nose of Kubera's energy, her rows of teeth from the energy of the nine prajapatis, referring to the nine sufferer of the tree of life above. Her two eyes arose from the energy of the oblation bearer. The two twilights became her two brows, and her ears were made from the energy of the wind. And from the incredibly fierce energies of the other gods, other limbs were made for the woman who was the supremely radiant Durga, more dangerous than all the gods and demons. So the Quran teaches that one should fear 
divinity more than any demon or any black magician because uh, that energy is very profound. It is the power of life and the power to, to kill, to annihilate, desire, the ego. So to develop light, we must work upon our defects. Do you have any questions? Well, the thing is with um, the thing is with that is that your level of being attracts your life. So when we learn to transmute the energies of sex, to be chaste, and to circulate the energies and work on our defects, you become more attracted to higher levels of being, which attracts different people, um, which is good, you know. On the other hand, it may be an obligation for us. Depends to uh, teach those who are at a lower level of being how to go higher, which uh, that's a personal choice, and really the divine chooses if you, know, if you have that mission to do that. But you teach others how to be better by example. But in other cases, there are people who are very negative, who are very destructive, and if you are around them, they infect you. You don't have to choose that influence. It's good to choose influences, Bring in people who are be with people who are going to raise your level of being, who help you to be more uh, more spiritual. But you may have the obligation to be with certain people who are going to be what they're going to be, and you have to deal with it. That's known as karma. But we do have many choices too, who we associate with, because as some island of yours stated. Negative emotions are more infectious than any disease, any microbe. So if you're around people who are very negative, they're going to infect you. So why choose that? If you have a choice, don't choose it. But if you have to be with certain people because of work or whatever, then you uh, have to transform that situation. But to avoid certain people doesn't mean that we love th- don't love them, that we don't have compassion for them. It, it means that because they're negative, we want to help them. And that helping them can mean not associating. So like Friedrich Nietzsche wrote in his Thus Book Zarathustra, to some people you may not give your hand, only a paw, and a desire that your paw should also have claws. So I get to learn how to negotiate with certain people, you know, how to work with them in a way that's going to be beneficial. But if you don't want to infect your level of being by being around certain people who maybe drink, smoke, fornicate, whatever, you don't have to be with them. You can avoid them. 
personally, I don't, I don't uh, go out of my way to associate with my people like that. I mean, I have certain coworkers which have tried to invite me to drink, but I don't. You know, I, I avoid that. Because I know that that type of influence is going to condition myself more. That's a, that's a very subtle thing, too, you know, because when we're studying this type of knowledge, we develop many egos, senses of self, Gnostic egos, that want to do the work, you know, certain beliefs and ideas that, or certain sense of self, that desire that covets not being covetous, is a line that Samayan Vyar gives. So you've got to observe that and constantly analyze What's going on in me psychologically? What do I need to change? And how do I be sincere? So that's how you develop light. You look inside and don't assume one way or the other that you're a certain way, but look at it. That's why Samalan Vior dedicated a whole book, Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology, simply to self observation. It's a very simple book, but deep because it, it, the act of looking is the act of meditation. Seeing oneself without analyzing with the intellect, with thinking. Not using the energy of the mind or the heart or the body, but just perceiving. So that's how we become just people, learning to obey the divine law, the law of karma in a superior sense. But um, you know, if you feel that you're going to waste certain energy being around certain people, you don't have to make that choice. In fact, you know, many traditions whether Christian, Sufi, Muslim, Jewish, would follow the monastic lifestyle, going to a, like a mosque or going to a certain, certain place of rec, uh, refuge in Buddhism, etc., to avoid other people like that. That's the basic meaning of it, you know, to live a monastic life, to avoid a worldly life of materialism. Well, that's another thing. Because, you know, those people, monks would practice in, their, in, in secrecy, in silence, usually going on a retreat for years without speaking and meditating on themselves. But um, it's, it's, it's good to do that. And the basic training, the purpose of that was so that one can avoid negative influences and focus con- solely on the spiritual work. But the thing is, uh, another thing is, the reason, you know, it's many people would leave the world and go to retreat to avoid the negativities of others. But in a more profound level, there was a Sufi master by the name of Ibn Arabi said, the reason why I go on retreat is not to avoid negative people but to help prevent myself from being negative towards other people. Very different mindset. More focused on the internal work. And then when you finish retreat, you go home, and you're more energized. So in the retreats that we do with this organization, we work with many exercises of energy to charge our battery, so to speak. But also we meditate and learn to direct that energy consciously through meditation. And so then we come home and learn to continue our work physically so that we have more focus and more energized. So the purpose of this lecture was to talk about self-observation and working with energy, especially. Because if you have no energy, you waste it through thinking, feeling, impulses, and acting in wrong ways. 
the, you can't develop light consciousness in a full sense. So it's a good question because the thing is, in this work of creative energy, working with the foundation of Kabbalah, Yasod, your brain changes physically. Your brain chemistry changes because you're using the very energy of life that can create a child to rejuvenate the mind, the brain. So physically, your brain, as Samayalan Vior said, is, becomes seminized and your semen becomes cerebrized. So we talk many times about the relationship between sex and the brain. People who deplete their sexual energy have no force to rejuvenate the mind. They can't concentrate. They can't sit still in meditation. They're constantly distracted because they're indulging in craving. Now, figures like Beethoven, Mozart, Chopin, Liszt, many composers and artists who are initiates were able to create the work that they did because their physical brain was was highly active. What does the scientists say that we only use like a small fraction of our brain now? Yeah, but if, if you do this work, you learn to use your whole brain physically. You're charging your physical matter with the, the energies of the assault. And that helps to channel the light of consciousness more directly so that you have more power. So people who abuse the sexual energy, like I said, their brains become depleted. They physically get sick. They develop illnesses like schizophrenia, like I said. Likewise, the heart. If there's no energy in the heart, one gets sick emotionally. If one's physically abusing the energies of, you know, relating to instinct, willpower, you get sick in your physical body, many conditions. So when you're working in this path, you're finding balance in all your, in all your energies so that your light is more profound. You have more equanimity. And that helps with your meditation practice because, again, no energy, no light, no force. And so concentration is more profound, is more focused with application. So I mentioned that quote from the Master Samael. talks about the different levels of energy. He's saying more exclusively that none of that really matters if you're not directing your attention day by day. Meaning every day you sit home, you meditate on, you develop concentration, or you, and then you really meditate on the ego, on the I, the self. Retrospect your day, review it in your imagination, what you said, what you did, what you thought, what you felt, how you acted. Remember everything that you went through in the day that you observed. Then you focus on one scene in which you saw certain egos emerge, certain defects. Concentrate and ask your Divine Mother to help you to understand those elements and work maybe five, ten minutes or however much you need on each defect. I would say work on three or four or whatever you saw and then ask for comprehension. Ask your Divine Mother, help me to understand these demons I created so that I can be freed of them, so that I can be purified of them. Yeah. So are you bringing that scenario up like in the beginning? 
No, good, good question. So the procedure is, in the beginning, clear your mind. This is known by the eight limbs of Ashtanga Yoga, meaning the eight steps of meditation, which if you go on our website, you'll see a course on Gnostic meditation that we gave, which I'm going to sum up here. So the first beginning of the, so the first two stages of meditation is Yama Niyama. Yama means to restrain, to yoke the mind. In the beginning, act ethically. Don't feed anger, don't feed lust, don't feed your defects, because if you do, you waste energy. The energy you can use to meditate and silence the mind. Niyama means precepts, referring to codes of conduct and virtues that you follow. Compassion, kindness, mercy, which you enact in your daily life, in your interactions with other human beings, other people. After that, you can develop asana, which is posture. Because if your mind is still and quiet, if you're saving your energy, you're able to relax more profoundly. But if you give in to violence and hatred and anger, that agitates the mind so much that psychologically and physically you're tense. That's why every religion teaches, be moral, be ethical. Analyze your level of being. How do you behave in certain circumstances with certain people? What are the secret motives? And when you understand and see that in yourself, refrain from acting in that way, behaving in that way. First, physically, restrain your, the tongue, don't say those things. And then the real battle begins by the real work begins when you're analyzing the internal tongue, the mind that comments on every single thing that you're doing. You're talking to a, you know, your coworker or a friend. They're giving, I mean, for, for example, at my job, I'm, I was, had some professional development meetings, and they're talking and teaching and, you know, many valuable things, but I'm finding my mind, even though I meditate, my mind is talking, 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 making comments. Oh, I would have said that better. I would have done that, you know, Really stupid thoughts, but I, you know, real silence is not by physically closing your tongue, your mouth, and not speaking. But psychologically, what is the internal chatter we go through? The commentary from that director in our head that is labeling every single thing that everyone else is doing, nonstop. So the way that you stop it is not by repressing it or by giving into it, but looking at it. And that's the beginning of ethics. Look at what your mind is doing. Just see it. Don't judge. You know, and then you'll find that, like an unmanaged classroom, the kids will start showing their true selves. They you know, will act up, and then, but you get data that way. You look at them. This is, you know, as a kind of a superficial example. But you get data about yourself by observing that. And that act of observation begins to raise your level of being, precisely when you're restraining the mind from acting negatively. So physically, one thing, don't act on that negative emotion. But then mentally, you've got to understand the qualities that are cursing and swearing and whatnot in the head when certain circumstances arise. When you learn to train your, your physical actions, your body that way, then, you're, then you learn to relax mentally, emotionally. That's way you can sit to practice with a third step, with your asana, your posture. As I said, if you're identified all day, wasting energy, the body will be agitated, you want to scratch an itch, you want to move. When you practice, your asana should be so firm that you don't move. Don't move your body. When your asana is, which you should really stick to one for your practice, maybe western style in full lotus, half lotus, on the floor, however you want to practice, pick a posture that's going to be conducive to your practice, meaning you can maintain drowsiness, 
be relaxed profoundly and still be attentive about what you're doing. Don't fall asleep, basically. So personally, I don't, you know, sometimes I lie in my bed when I want to fall asleep. Doing a mantra is good, but when you are practicing, it's good to sit upright in a way that your body is going to be relaxed, but you can stay focused on what you're doing. So that's asana. And when your body is fully silenced and relaxed, you're not moving your muscles, not scratching, not being agitated, you can start to develop what's known as pratyahara. Going into the fourth step. Pratyahara means suspension of the senses. So when your body is still and you're not focusing on your physicality, you don't move at all. You start to withdraw your attention from the exterior world, if you focus on your interior world. You suspend your senses. You may experience thought, feeling, sensations in the body, but the characteristic of pratyahara is that you are not identified with them. You don't, give, you don't get carried or lost away from that current. You may be thinking, feeling, etc., but you're just aware, going within yourself, relaxed. So Swami Shivananda wrote that pratyahara is the crux of meditation. And one uh, lecturer on, uh, from Gorian Publishing, Gnostic Radio, mentioned that pratyahara is like a lever. It allows the other steps to come into play. So if your senses are suspended, you're retracted like a tortoise in its shell. You don't focus on anything else. You relax. That's when you become silent. And that's the beginning of meditation, really. Suspending the senses. So everything else is preliminary. When your, when your senses are suspended, relaxed, you're looking within, that's when you can learn to concentrate on one thing. That's dharana, fifth step. Concentration is the ability to focus on one thing without forgetting what you're doing, without getting distracted. So, in the beginning of your discipline, I suggest sit somewhere comfortably, do a mantra, relax your body, your mind, work with energy, circulate the creative forces, like through pranayama or mantra. Do it for however long you need to get, feel relaxed. And that way, when you physically sit, and then you learn to introspect, the senses become suspended, they become calm. The mind is serene because the energies are circulating in you and also the mind becomes more quiet. When the mind is quiet, when you're not distracted by anything, focus your attention on remembering your day. So do that every day where you're relaxing yourself, self-observing. When you go home, focus on some energy work, work with the mantras or, or pranayama, so that that energy naturally stills the mind. Then, concentrate on your day. Remember what happened. Retrospect your day. Imagine it. Because now that you have those energies circulating, your imagination becomes much more robust. You can see things more clear. If you deplete your sexual energy, you can't perceive things clearly. It'll be, it'll be negative imagination, known as fantasy. You're just identifying with daydreams and memories. But conscious imagination is the ability to see something as it was, as it is. That's the consciousness. So when you're concentrating and remembering your day, simply recall them like you remember anything. You just try to reflect on what you, you did, what you said, what you thought, what you felt. And imagine it. Imagine the scenes. What are the egos that you saw? And then when you take a scene, imagine it. Concentrate on your being. Ask your being, to show, your Divine Mother, to show you what you need to understand about the certain ego you saw. And then wait, observe. 
So you got to wait for the answer. You look, you observe it. Your mind is serene, is calm. And then when you're not thinking of anything or expecting anything, suddenly the insight comes. It may come in as an experience. You may physically leave your body. I've had this happen where I was meditating. I physically fell asleep because my pranayama as well as my pratyahara, silence of mind, was profound enough that and I was then concentrating on my practice. I left my body physically. And then you can receive experiences about the defect that you're studying so that you can comprehend where it came from, how you made it, what it's doing to you. But it may be more mundane than that. And I wouldn't say mundane, actually. I would just say more, uh, more common, where you're sitting to practice and suddenly you understand, I know how that ego works, that anger. You understand its root. And that gives you a sense of love. When you sense that liberation and that joy, that you are not that ego and that you've understood it, you feel liberation. You extract your consciousness from that element and you see yourself as you are. And then you ask your Divine Mother, please kill this ego. I don't want to have it in me anymore. And it may take a few days of doing that, but, or weeks or months or years. But you see that through work, the ego, and through your self-observation, those egos get smaller. They become like a child. And then finally your Divine Mother decapitates it. And then you're free from it. And when you free yourself from an ego, you feel real joy. Really, there's no, no greater feeling than that. So people want to have astral experiences. They say, I want to talk to Master Samael. I want to do this and this. I want to have jinn experiences. And I always, when I hear them talk like that, I tell them, no. Well, it's good. It's good for the soul to have that experience. You feel inspired. But they only give you that inspiration so that you go home and say, okay, I had a vacation. Now I have to get to work. Because they're showing you what life is like beyond that ego. You feel like a child. You feel innocent. And you feel that peace. And they're showing you, okay, now that you, have it, now that you had a jinn experience, now that you had a samadhi, now you have to go back into your prison, your cell. You need to study and you need to work. And that's the reason why they give you experiences. But many people in this tradition get stuck on wanting to have experiences. They say, I've been studying for 20 years, I want to have astral travel. I've, I've heard people who are even teaching this doctrine. They write to me, they write to us on our website saying, hey, I'm a missionary from Gnosis, I've been studying for 20 years, I've been teaching for 15 years, and yet I haven't had an astral experience. And I say, well, what is your practice? So they say, well, I try silencing my mind, but I feel you know, my mind wanders. Well, that's the problem. The beginning is, Follow those initial steps of meditation. Silence the mind, work with energy, self-observe. But you've got to work on the ego. Because if you don't kill the ego, break those shells, you can't extract light. You can't have light. So if you want to have illumination, you've got to work on the darkness. So when you are working with the preliminary steps, you have pratyahara, you're developing concentration. That's when you learn to meditate, which is uh, the next step. So after dharana, you have uh, concentration. Now, I skipped a step. I said, after uh, I said yama, niyama, uh, asana, and what comes next is pranayama. So I did say, I mentioned to you, work with energy, pranayama, work with the vital force. That's essential. That's how you suspend your senses. That's pratyahara. Next. Your mind is still because you're working with the prana, the, prana, the vital force. Then, dharana, you're able to concentrate, and when your concentration is profound, you understand things in a new way. You receive insight. That's dhyana, meditation. 
And then when you are fully absorbed in the object of meditation, you have an experience, samadhi. You leave your body, you, you astral travel, you do whatever. Samadhi is simply the consciousness free of the conditioning. You've extracted the light like the genie from the bottle. And now you have the ability to do what, you, what your being wants you to do. Jin experience and whatnot. But the thing is, when students or missionaries write to me and they say, hey, I'll be honest with you, they say, and it's sad. They say, I've been studying for this a long time, but I'm not seeing any results. And I say, well, are you working on your ego? And they say, yeah, but, well, that's the thing. You kill the ego, you receive illumination. Don't work on the ego, you just remain in darkness. Yeah, and people get stuck on the idea. They say, I want to I put my physical body in the jinn state. It's beautiful. Have that experience. You enter the fourth dimension with your, or fifth dimension or whatever and you're fit with your physical body or go to the absolute. You talk face-to-face -face with your being or unite with Ain Sof, your light. You know, personally, I've had those experiences, but... You know, I came back to my bed, and I'm like, you know, I woke up, I'm like, you know, there's not a day I don't think about those experiences, but the only reason I think about them now is because they inspire me to keep moving and doing the work that has to be done. You know, they show me, they, they gave me vacations, and they say, okay, your, your dharma's up, come back, teach other people how to do it, and sometimes months, long time, no experiences, happens like that. But the solution is, you develop light of consciousness by comprehending your defects and eliminating them and then gradually you start to develop more light and light and light and you start to have experiences again you know usually in the beginning they give you they have a like a probationary period the divine says okay he's transmuting she's transmuting they're doing their work the being says i want to i want my child to work again or to work in this path let's give him or her an experience because they're meditating to inspire them and, and okay then you have the experience and then afterward the rework begins. So you develop light by comprehending the ego. You kill the ego, then you receive illumination. Uh, what, what do you mean by giving experience? They put you in situations where you put the test? I mean, uh, mystical experience. Oh, okay. Have a samadhi. But I have people write to me, you know. It's sad. Because these are people who are teaching, but still, you know, if you don't work effectively, then you won't get the results. But if you work every day on the ego, you develop more and more light. But there are periods where there's darkness because your karma. You may have karma that, you know, because you betrayed the light in your own way that they say, you know, don't give him light yet. Let him suffer in the darkness for a while so that he really wants to change. And, you know, if you're persistent like Beethoven was, you'll go from the Moonlight Sonata to the Ninth Symphony. Moonlight Sonata is about that path of the moon. You know, that sorrow of being in the darkness. And it was that line, I mean, I, you know, makes me think of the, the melody, makes me think of Eli, Eli, Lama Samna Chani. Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But divinity doesn't leave, this, leave, leave us. But if we betray the Lord, then what can you do? What can you do? Any other questions? Yeah, pranayama. So with pranayama, how, how, much, how long should I use? How long you, however long you feel you can hold it comfortably without forcing your lungs. So you can begin the, you can begin the pranayama. First, pray. Ask your being to help you circulate the energies. 
and to help you be serene. You can close your nostril, one over the other, with your forefinger, your left nostril closed, your right nostril inhale the air. Imagine the energy is rising from, your, from the, the opposite gonad, because the left nostril relates to the right gonad, right nostril with the left gonad, where they're over your testicles. Inhale the air, imagine the, imagine the energy rising in your mind towards your head. Close your nostrils, retain the breath for as long as you can, but not force it. You want to imagine the energy saturating the brain. Exhale through the other nostril, imagine that light descending from your third eye, your brain, to your heart. Do the same process with the other nostril. Imagine the other circuit of energy rising up to the brain. Hold it, let it saturate the mind like a light or fire. Exhale, send it to the heart. That breathing through both nostrils in that way constitutes one pranayama. Some pranayamas specify doing seven. You can do as many as you want until you feel energized. But you shouldn't practice pranayama to the point that you feel strained. Swami Shivananda said, when you feel light and energized and relaxed and really happy and peaceful, you can stop do it for as long as you need. But um, yeah, pranayama should not be forced, meaning don't strain the breath. If your nostrils have, are blocked, you can, I know some people who use, I can't remember what you, that Indian device is, you pour water through your nostrils to clear it out. That's a kind of a hard way to do it, but if you want to practice pranayama in that way, you can clear the nostrils that way, the sinuses. And uh, don't force the breath, but relax. The whole process should be peaceful. Any final questions? Thank you. Thank you. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at chicagonosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace. Thank you.